This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Just country boys and girls getting down on the bar. All right, you win Taylor Riggs' heart over with little Taylor McGraw. I'm sorry, Tim McGraw, Taylor McGraw, whatever. Anyway, Tim McGraw, I know my country music. I know Tim McGraw. That's embarrassing for me and for anyone knowing me who lists, who is listening. And Diagnan is here with us. Let's just get into this so I stop embarrassing myself. She's managing director and U.S. machinery analyst over at J.P. Morgan Chase. She joins us on the phone from New York City. And Anne, I have to say, a, not a overwhelmingly positive report from Deere, and yet investors seeing a silver lining here? Help me understand what's going on. Yeah, well, it was Deere's fiscal second quarter, so they, uh, third quarter, so they just have to guide one quarter out. And so I think there was a sense of, gee, it could have been worse. Uh, they did talk about, however, uh, how bad the fundamentals are in U.S. agriculture, uh, strong dollar trade tariffs, Lack of exports, uh, ethanol margins at a five-year low. I mean, you threw the kitchen sink at, at the fundamentals today on the call. But, you know, I think from the investor standpoint, for the very near term, it could have been worse. Well, and Anne, talk to me about some of those problems. Of the problems that they faced and discussed, how much of those are dear specific problems that they can control? And how much of this is, like you said, weather-related or crop price-related and things that maybe they don't quite have control over? Yeah, I mean, uh, we are underweight rated on deer, and the biggest reason for our underweight rating is that, you know, we've seen uh, corn exports down 16% year to date. We've seen soybean exports down 22%, uh, primarily on uh, China tariffs, but also on the strong dollar. And frankly, the rest of the world has been able to catch up and produce soft commodities uh, faster than the U.S. has been. So we've got places like Brazil, Argentina, Ukraine, Russia, all competing with the U.S. And what we've seen historically is that when the U.S. loses these export markets in soft commodities, it is very difficult to regain them. For example, we expect Brazil to continue to increase their share of soybean exports going forward. They their soybean exports represented about 10% of total exports two decades ago. Now they're 50% plus. So we've got growing competition from around the world. And when you lose your export market, even for a season or two, others step in. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned Argentina, because obviously we've been talking about that country in a slightly different context uh, all week. How much does all of the turmoil going on around the world factor in for a company like Deere, even looking beyond the obvious sort of trade tensions? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, Argentina is a large exporter, uh, not so much of soybeans. They crush them and they export the meal. Uh, it does make them much more competitive when their uh, currency gets devalued. So that puts downward pressure on U.S. competitiveness. 
however, on the other hand, it makes uh, purchasing of equipment more expensive unless you're manufacturing the equipment in Argentina. So sales of equipment are down significantly in Argentina right now, but it does give the Argentinian farmers a very big competitive advantage in terms of exports. That's so interesting how it sort of cuts both ways. I hadn't thought about it. That's a really interesting insight. And talk to me about another headline that sort of crossed my eye, which was they're going to take a look at their cost structure and do a review of their business to look at efficiency and profitability. How much of that information was new where you go back and update your models today? Or was this expected given, like you had said, they've been sort of highlighting the downturn in the crop market that was coming? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was kind of interesting on the call. They mentioned that they have a 15% operating target margin by 2022, but today they kept re-emphasizing that that margin target was aspirational. Uh, They cannot get there unless the U.S. uh, farmer comes back into the market and spends because their mix is so positive. And so what they did acknowledge on the call today is that cost reductions are going to have to contribute more in order for them to even try to achieve that target. But they did emphasize that that's an aspirational target. Um, You know, if you can't get there on revenue, you're going to have to get there on costs. And uh, we don't have 15 percent operating margin in our model for 2022. And nothing we heard today would make us change that. All right. So who else do we need to be thinking about to give us a more comprehensive picture of this sector and who's top of mind for you? In terms of other companies, um, we look at companies like Agco uh, for the opposite reason. It's got very little exposure to U.S. row crops, large equipment market. Uh, it's got much more exposure to South America and to Europe, where things are significantly better. Uh, and Agco sold off quite notably earlier uh, in the week on the weakness in Argentina, which may be a negative in the short term for equipment sales, but uh, it does make the South American farmer much more competitive and uh, is it makes Agco more interesting from a valuation perspective. So that's one I'd watch. Great stuff. Well, thank you so much for joining us here on a Friday afternoon. Great context on Deer, certainly a stock that lots of folks are watching today across the world. Ann Dignan is Managing Director and U.S. Machinery Analyst for J.P. Morgan Chase. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, earlier today, David Weston was catching up with Brian Moynihan. He is the chairman and the CEO of Bank of America. A wide-ranging conversation, to be sure. Let's listen to a part of it. So what happened to the bond market this week? I mean, we have the 30-year that set a new record low in yield. You have the yield curve inverting on the twos and tens. You have any number of indicators that would suggest there's something wrong. So what caused this? It's, it's largely outside the United States and largely inside the United States around the concerns around trade and manufacturing. Um, and so if you think about, you look around the world, there hasn't been a lot of great news lately, whether it's uh, the, uh, the Brexit situation, which just not doesn't seem to settle down, Europe slowing down, and the Europe Central Bank saying we need to slow down, uh, China slowing down, the impact of the trade war across the regions, the need for companies to restructure their supply chains to avoid the tariffs, which means they're spending money to just move things, not really spending money to produce new products and new capabilities. And so that, that debate, and then more importantly, the debate about the debate. 
So the old saying, you know, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. We have nothing to fear about a recession right now except for the fear of recession. And that's what's really going on. You're seeing a lot of people, you know, look ahead and say if trade war continues, if, if this doesn't get solved or that doesn't get solved, you could see this finally getting to the consumer confidence which in the U.S., which is actually the critical thing to maintain. The business confidence has come down a little bit, but still very strong, especially small businesses and medium-sized businesses. They're fine. It's just that they're a little more worried about what's going on around the world. Can the United States keep this going by itself? I mean, you, you had Germany actually with negative GDP growth yeah. uh, last quarter, uh, and you have China, as you said, slowing down. Is it enough for the United States to keep going, or at some point does it become contagious? You know, I think if you go back and look, you know, people say, what's this environment like? It was like three-quarters of this decade so far, if you really think about it, where the U.S. economy was recovering and growing, and yet the economies around the world were struggling. And then we had synchronized growth for about a half a year, a year, if you remember, a few years back, and it, where Europe started growing, and people felt good about Europe as it moved above one to one and a half, and people were feeling good. So I, th- I think the reality is the United States can help push along because it's sheer size. The U.S. spends on health care what the entire Indian GDP is. So, and that's the fifth or sixth largest economy. So as long as the U.S. goes, it can help. It would sure help if Europe, which is a similar size economy to add all together, was growing faster. It's slowing down, but it, and that's, that's the reality. So I think it's tougher sledding for the U.S. economy to carry its weight today. But it, and then the additional uncertainty around trade and how it's going to impact business plans and capital investment is really the concern. But the U.S. can do a lot to carry the world. It's just that it has to really be con- set up to really be pushing. And that is Bank of America Chairman and CEO Brian Moynihan speaking with David Weston earlier today in an exclusive conversation that really covered a lot. One of the things that really struck me, and I think you mentioned it earlier, Taylor, was this idea of the only fear of recession is the fear of recession. But it feels like that fear is a bit real right now. Do you think I'm misreading that from well, this week? It's, it's so, it changes so much because the data this week has been strong. Yeah. Retail sales were good. CPI was firmer. But we do have a risk that we talk ourselves into a recession because when you see these headlines of the inverted yield curve and the bond market, it certainly feels like that. I think one good thing that Brian Moynihan said is that small and medium-sized businesses are good but they are a little bit nervous. And I think you and I have talked a lot about on this program, the difference between a leading indicator of CapEx spending, of businesses reinvesting, and then the lagging indicator, which is the U.S. consumer. And at what point does U.S. consumer maybe start to turn to match some of the other leading indicators that we're seeing? He, at least for his part, says that it's good. But yeah, I mean, some companies are starting to show a little bit signs of getting nervous. I want to bring you just a quick headline that I know you will be interested in, Taylor, and that is Argentina cut to triple C from B by Fitch. I can't imagine this is a shocking development for most people, given everything we've seen about Argentina. It is amazing. feels like a long time ago that we first started talking about Argentina, but it is played through and it even came up in our conversation with Ann Dignan from JP Morgan talking about dear earnings. So it's it's an important economy. And the problem about B to triple C is you have now leapfrogged over a B minus and a triple C plus to a C. So you've yeah. gotten a three notch downgrade. The good news is you're not falling from investment grade to high yield. Right. That presents an entirely different host of problems. Great point. But three notch from higher inve- higher high yield to lower or mid high yield, yes, catches your attention. 
because you wonder if any funds who hold this debt have maybe a clause in their fund that talks about maybe only triple C's or maybe only in the B sector. And if that presents more for selling. Right. Well, and it also feels like not everything is resolved there. So if they're making this decision now ahead of the actual elections in October, which everyone is looking toward, what does that portend for the rest of the year? And there was a great article in the Bloomberg Business Week magazine about what do you do in this lame duck section, lame duck session between a primary and a general election when the markets are falling apart who's in charge i believe mauricio mockery tried to phone fernandez he said he was in a class couldn't make the time to call him back so again who's sort of propping up the market i know there's a lot of drama uh, and it remains to be seen what exactly will happen there so for more on that conversation that we heard between Brian Moynihan and David Weston, head over to Bloomberg.com. All right, so we saw a lot of action over the last two days, Taylor, around General Electric. Well, there's been a lot of movement in and out of that stock, and some hedge funds have... At least they were very excited about GE, and then yesterday came, and now we've seen a rebound. So what do we make of it all? Brendan Case is Industrial Aerospace and Chemicals team leader. He joins us on the phone from our Dallas bureau. Brendan, great to have you with us. So bring us up to date. Where's GE today, especially after that bad day yesterday? Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been such a seesaw the last two days. Uh, Yesterday was the worst decline for GE in 11 years. Today, they're at the top of the S&P 500, uh, making up a lot of the lost ground. Um, a lot of the, the Wall Street analysts have been coming out with reports um, overnight and this morning, uh, kind of questioning the allegations of, of Harry Markopoulos, who's the uh, you know, very prominent uh, whistleblower from the Madoff case. Uh, but, but, but in the GE case, kind of questioning some of his conclusions um, and, and saying that they still think that Larry Culp, the CEO, is, is pretty well positioned uh, to, to keep moving ahead with his turnaround effort. Well, and Brendan, I do like the notes that were out this morning. You know, very important people like analysts from Citigroup. And you have William Blair's analysts coming out. I mean, these are analysts that have been covering this stock for years and really, really know the ins and outs on that. Yet at the same time, I wonder how much credibility um, the Madoff accuser had in his report of what she sort of highlighted these Uh, shortcomings, given the fact that he had called Madoff out? I mean, how much credibility does he have? Well, I think that he comes into into the argument with uh, a pretty well-known name and and, and, and a lot of credibility uh, based on his past record. Um, At the same time, GE is coming into it without a lot of credibility in terms of its accounting. This is a, you know, this is a company that has a history of complicated and sometimes confusing accounting. Uh, in fact, Culp, when he came in, uh, that was one of the things that he set out to improve in terms of the financial transparency when, when he took over in, in October. Um, so the claims that Markopoulos is making, you know, they can't be dismissed out of hand. Um, and, and, you know, to make 
Matters more interesting, GE said last year that the Department of Justice was investigating it as well as the SEC. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, federal investigators will undoubtedly be looking very closely at its accounting. And so talk to us, Brendan, about these hedge funds. They, I mean, these are well-known names. We have the benefit of uh, 13F filings that lead us directly to what their holdings were, at least at the end of the second quarter. We're talking about Renaissance Citadel adage, among others. What's their exposure here? And, And what was the investment case, as best you can tell? So these, yeah, these are some of the savviest investors out there. Um, hard to hard to say for sure if they lost money yesterday because we don't know what happened to their holdings since the end of June. Um, but certainly in the first half of of 2019, um, Culp was able to generate a lot of excitement. You know, he came in in October and had kind of a rocky start actually for the last three months of the year. Uh, but starting at the beginning of this year, really. Um, really made progress in in winning over some investors, some analysts, generating a sense of optimism at GE for the first time in uh, you know two years or more. Um, and so I think a lot of the investors, uh, you know, some like Renaissance were 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 you know undoubtedly just basing um, basing their decisions on on their mathematical and algorithmic models, but. Um, at the same time, there were certainly a lot of investors that were making, you know, a very, a very careful decision that this was the right time to to buy into GE, um, given the optimism that that Culp was able to to generate. Brendan, I like that you had mentioned that GE had earlier uh, talked about how the De- Department of Justice, you know, highlighting their concerns. What happens next? Do we hear from the Department of Justice? Do we eventually wait and it's a wait and see of who's right, a short seller or GE? Where do we go from here? I think for now, we're going to have to just be happy with wait and see. And I don't think we can say more than that. We don't have a sense of, of if or when uh, the, the Department of Justice or the SEC will wrap up their probes. Um, and, and, and so at, at this point, in terms of who's right in this argument, um, you know, time will tell. Um, at the same time, uh, Culp still has a lot of work cut out for him in terms of his turnaround. Uh, you know, he's still got problems in the financial business at GE and the, the power equipment business is in a, a weak market. Um, and of course, GE is exposed to the, uh, the Boeing 737 MAX because it's right. the engine supplier. So there's, you know, it, fundamentally, there's still a lot of questions that he's got to tackle. Um, and then, you know, he'll obviously uh, need to make this accounting dispute a much higher priority in terms of what he's out there talking about. Well, and I'm so glad you pointed that out, Brendan, because as you say, you know, this is not just sort of, oh, this is the crisis that we have to deal with if we're GE or if you're Larry Culp. And part of the reason this probably popped the way that it did is because you do have a lot of people who were already a bit skeptical about all the different things, all these fires uh, that he's got to put out. Help us understand just about a minute left. What's the priority as far as you can tell in terms of all those things that that you just listed in terms of what Culp and his team have to tackle? I think that the main priorities uh, are trying to get a handle on risk in the financial business in GE Capital and uh, doing what you can to uh, 
turn around the power equipment business, um, you know, to the extent possible amid pretty weak demand. Um, but, you know, from a big picture perspective, this is a company that lost more than $200 billion wow. over the last, you know, in 2017, 2018 in its market value. Um, I think you've had a big turnover in the shareholders. And, and I think some of that, you know, change was, was evident in yesterday's volatility. Right. Um, and so that said, you know, Culp, well, I, th- I think he really will have to, uh, probably do more to see if he can dispel the concerns that were so so apparent yesterday. Yeah, great, great points uh, for sure. All right. Brendan Case is Industrial Aerospace and Chemicals Team Leader. He joined us on the phone from our Dallas Bureau. Really great insights. I mean, that was a story that obviously really captivated a lot of folks on the street. And interesting to see, I will say, you know, how much the stock has rebounded. It hasn't made up all of it, but... Certainly made back a lot of it with uh, a lot of the uh, commentary from the company and others. And you have analysts uh, really across the street and our own VI analysts sort of coming out and, and defending the stock, if you will. Yeah, we'll see what happens next week on that. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. And that's why everybody wants a piece of the action. All right, well, something everyone has been trying to get a piece of for years. IPOs, initial public offerings. So let's get into the business of that because it's also such an interesting gauge, Taylor, of demand and sort of the overall health of the stock market and even the broader economy. Jerry Rayo is the head of capital markets for Click IPO. He joins us on the phone from here in New York City. Jerry, great to have you with Taylor and myself. Good afternoon, Jason and Taylor. Thanks for having me on. All right. So talk to me about, first of all, help us understand what Click IPO is before we get into the, the sort of broader uh, market out there. Sure. So tech, uh, Click IPO is really a technology-based platform that enables retail investors to get access to capital markets products. So specifically to get access to both IPOs and follow-on offerings. So we're pri- trying to help broaden out the distribution of this product to a broad segment of the investing population. All right. So talk to us uh, about what you have seen this year, because it's been a big IPO year. I'm thinking about Beyond Meat. I'm thinking about Levi's. I'm thinking about all the anticipation for WeWork. What are the big takeaways so far? Yeah, so this has been a a great year thus far. Uh, We had the slowdown in the first quarter, given the, the volatility in the equity markets last year and then the government shut down. But since uh, the end of the first quarter and going into the second quarter, it's been a pretty robust IPO market, um, and the performance has been uh, somewhat spectacular, almost double the, the S&P 500 per- performance. Uh, we saw in the, in the second quarter, it was the best second quarter uh, going all the way back to the year 2000 uh, in terms of the proceeds raised in the best quarter in, in five years in the best uh, in terms of proceeds and the best in terms of deal count in four years. So we're continuing to see a pretty robust uh, IPO calendar. Uh, we expect that, depending on volatility going into September uh, and the remainder of the year, that we're going to continue to see a pretty robust. And we could actually have one of the best years, if not the best year ever, in terms of proceeds raised in the IPO market, which would put it at about $100 billion. Uh, there are a number of high-profile, what we call unicorns, or those are companies that uh, have a market cap of a billion dollars or greater, slated to come public, the likes of Airbnb, Peloton, Casper, and Jason, as you mentioned, uh, WeWork. 
Uh, so we're really excited about the prospects of the remainder of the year. I think it's really important, uh, as always, when you're assessing any equity secured, but especially with an IPO, is to make sure that you uh, do your due diligence uh, in assessing the company, the industry. And again, that's where Click IPO can be very helpful in that uh, you can, as a starting point, you can look at the Click IPO app, you download it, right. um, and you can access the prospectus as well as uh, some business insight. So well, uh, we're excited about the end of the year. Jerry, you sort of are going exactly where I wanted to next. Is I think it's great when you can provide a service where everyday investors can get involved. Except that we've heard a lot of concerns about these unicorns and the massive amount of companies that are IPOing with huge risks. There's no path to profitability. Half of them aren't ever going to be profitable, at least for the foreseeable future. At what point are, you know, are there a lot of risks out there as well that investors definitely need to be aware of? Yeah, and I think whenever you're investing in an IPO, IPO it doesn't have a history. Right, so that you don't have a history to go by in terms of public information on these companies. So there is a more of a risk. However, the returns can also be better. So again, I go back to that it's very important that you understand the company's fundamentals, you understand the industry that they participate, and that you don't get caught up in the hype of, of just buying an IPO because you believe that it's going higher. Right. You have to project out and, and look at the fundamentals of the company, and sometimes those, those fundamentals don't play out in the short term, um, it takes a little while, and that's probably the case in Lyft and, and Uber. Uh, but if you believe in the fundamentals, you believe in the, the, the prospects for the company over the long term, and I point back to Facebook, um, then, then it's not a bad idea to be looking at it at the time of the IPL. Right. Uh, Jerry, uh, less than a minute left, but I got to ask you, there has been some concern that not enough companies are going public. They're staying private for longer, maybe staying private for the duration. We've seen a fundamental shift, it feels like. How much do you worry that that's sort of a secular trend? Um, I, you know, I think that companies are going uh, staying private longer because of the fact that there's been a lot of capital uh, available right. to private investments. However, I think that uh, given that we're 10 years in, in the economic expansion and, and an equity market, a, a good equity market, that a lot of these companies now are going to look to cap the public markets. There are a lot of benefits to being a public company, um, and so I'm not, I'm not really concerned about that. I think that uh, you'll start to see that, and, and we're seeing it, that uh, yeah. you know, this is going to be a banner year, and if we get a, an, a supportive equity market, I think 2020 could be another great year for the IPO market. Interesting. All right. Very good. Jerry Rao is head of capital markets over at Click IPO. He joined us on the phone from New York City. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. The music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it is time for the drive to the close. Janet Johnson back with us, portfolio manager at TrimTabs Asset Management. Here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio, we last talked to you, Janet, I think out in Phoenix at the big Insight Conference. But what people really need to know is you're a Southerner like me, and that's 
all that really matters. He walked into the studio and said, hey, and I just immediately rekindled our kinship. So what's going on uh, out in the markets right now? Because it has been, I think this is a technical term, Taylor, a heck of a week. It has been a heck of a week. That's for sure. You know, we've, we've flip, we seem to be flip-flopping from trade war crisis, black swan risk, to a little bit of a Goldilocks environment. That uh, feels good. Goldilocks is good, right? Yeah. Well, we, we just came off of second quarter earnings. Um, they were expected to be down year over year. But guess what? No earnings recession. Uh, uh, we, and we believe that the stronger uh, U.S. economy in the second quarter was driven by the U.S. consumer. But but we saw 56% of the S&P 500 companies better than expected sales, right. 76% better than expected earnings. So, you know, a story that Jason and I have been talking a lot about is in the midst of the market panic, the courage to not go to cash. And we've seen actually a lot of people go to cash. We had, I think, record, near record, the highest since 2009, flows into money market funds. You now have $3.4 trillion in money market funds. As you take a look at the volatility, do you go to cash? How do you position your portfolio to hedge some of that downside risk? Well, I, I run long-only portfolios, and we're typically fully... Um, invested. In our case, I think that the way you position yourself to weather the storm is that you own high quality companies. We like companies with strong free cash flow growth, strong balance sheets. We also look for other modes, whether it's recurring revenues, brand awareness, uh, uh, innovative or disruptive technology. We want to find the companies that are best positioned that you can own over the long term. And so let's talk about some of those brand names because I know some of them are on your hit list. The names like Disney and one that I know we talked about last time you were with us, uh, Lululemon, you know, one of my favorite names to, to talk about. What do you see just starting with those two uh, that, that uh, has you excited? Well, both of them have very strong, not just U.S., but global franchises. Mm -hmm. uh, Lululemon is actually a Canadian company. Its online sales last quarter grew 100% in China. Uh, wow. One thing that we have seen, if you listen to companies and you don't focus so much on the macro statistics, the Chinese consumer is very strong. I mean, Alibaba reported yesterday their revenues were up 42% and their earnings grew 86%. And I mention that because we own a, quite a few companies in both of our portfolios that have strong global brands. And the U.S. consumer has been performing very steady. And a lot of companies continue to see double-digit growth from the Chinese consumer. I really liked that you mentioned companies with strong brands because we've seen that within the staples. Companies like Procter & Gamble, Kimberly Clark, if you have a very strong recognizable brand, you can offset some of the tariff pressure because you can pass that cost on to the consumer. How much of those tariffs are you also looking at when you take a look at these companies with these strong brands and how nimble they are in passing on those higher costs to the consumer? I think the bigger companies have more flexibility. I hate to say this, but they can 
twist more arms. Um, so Amazon, Walmart, Nike, the, they have more negotiating power than the smaller companies. What we're seeing is across the board, the manufacturers are taking a little bit, the consumer a little bit, and the U.S. Uh, companies a little bit. And they've been very quick to divert and move manufacturing. Well, and Jason, Janet's spot on. I'm taking a look at the Russell 2000 versus S&P 500. Mm-hmm. Small caps are underperforming year to date and on a one-year basis because those small companies don't have the flexibility, like she said, to twist those arms and pass those costs on. And talk to us about tech. You mentioned Amazon, which I guess is, we sort of vaguely consider it a tech name, but it's so much more. But a name like Apple, especially on a week like this with all the tensions back and forth with China, there are some big looming sort of tech questions, even when it comes to domestic politics. Uh, Talk to me about Apple specifically. Well, I think what we're seeing with the large companies is trade diversion. Mm -hmm. Uh, So other countries are benefiting from the the China-U.S. trade war. The interesting thing with me about Apple is I think the new credit card, the um, Uh. Apple Pay, all of the services, Apple Music is ramping up, the um, uh, earbuds, other gadgets, but really services are going to be a bigger and bigger component. And I mean, I was surprised, like the old guy in my office loves Apple Pay, uses it Mm -hmm. all the time. That is interesting. As we look forward, um, what do you expect for the rest of the year? Do you protect for the downside or are you using some of the pullbacks to use that as buying opportunity? Well, we're always fully invested. Uh, We're going to continue to be overweight consumer names. We're going to look for high-quality companies, companies with more U.S. revenues or other types of moats. So we want to build as many protective um, factors into our portfolios in terms of the companies that we own. But, you know, it's interesting. Ed Yardini, a good friend of ours, wrote Mm -hmm. a piece this week about the yield curve mm-hmm. hysteria, and what he says is that um, net interest margins are positive. Loan growth is there's no credit crunch on the consumer side or the corporate side. Corporations are being a little more conservative, which is probably good. Um, loans are up. Willingness to make loans are up. Um, I and we're seeing that as yeah. well from Bank of America, Merrill yeah. Lynch, CEO, They're, interviewed today, for that's example, exactly right. Jason. Yeah, a Goldilocks market indeed. All right, Janet Johnson, Portfolio Manager at TrimTabs Asset Management, here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We're going to check in with her as the college football season goes along. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.